0: Emergency 911, operator 6752, do you need police, fire, or ambulance? need ambulance. Who was the person that
1: stabbed him? I don't know. We think it's somebody with an intruder in the house.
2: Initially, when we got on the scene, there were a lot of things that just didn't make sense. The story didn't make sense as far as anything being cleaned up. It was more or less of everything looked staged.
1: And if you care about Kathy Wan, if you care about Robert Wan, you would share that information. Having a murder on your conscience is no small load to carry.
0: August second, 2006, Robert Wan, a 32-year-old married attorney, was found stabbed to death inside the home of a friend in Washington, D.C., a murder still unsolved that is one of the district's most chilling, haunting, and mind-boggling in recent memory. Four people were inside the Swan Street house that night, but the only charges came more than two years later. Victor Zaborski, Joseph Price, a partner in a top D.C. law firm, and Dylan Ward, three gay men who considered themselves a family were all charged with obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and tampering with evidence. After a bench trial in D.C. Superior Court that lasted six weeks, all three men were acquitted. What follows is a podcast about the crime that had Washington-area residents transfixed for years, who murdered Robert Wong, and why i'm paul wagner a reporter with wttg tv fox 5 in washington dc i've covered this case from the days after the murder through the trial of the three men a period of more than four years in the last episode you heard portions of what price ward and zaborski told police during their interviews with homicide detectives in the early morning hours of august 3rd 2006. in this episode you will hear from one of the detectives who was in the swan street house the night of the murder and later interviewed Joe Price, the only time Price spoke with the police. Also inside the house that night were two paramedics with DC Fire and EMS. One of them, Jeff Baker, told police he was on high alert as he made his way through the brick row house and up to the guest room on the second floor. Something was off about the way the three men were acting, he said. Baker also said in his experience on a scene like that, People are yelling and screaming and telling him where to find the victim. He told detectives it made the hair stand up on the back of his neck. We asked Baker for an interview, but he declined. Milton Norris was also in the house that night. At the time, he was a homicide detective with the Metropolitan Police Department. Now retired, he agreed to speak publicly about the case for the first time. Do you recall getting the call about the homicide on Swan Street?
2: Yes, I recall that very well.
0: So tell me what you remember.
2: Well, when we first got the call, I said, Swan Street. I'm familiar with the area, and I knew that wasn't a bad area. It was a pretty good area. So it immediately struck me that, uh, that we're probably going to be there for a while, which we were.
0: So 1509 Swan Street at, uh, so Swan at 15th Street, DuPont Circle area there, that was a gentrifying area at the time, a lot of nice row homes. We know that Joe Price and his partner paid over a million dollars for that place. So you get the call, you're thinking, this may be an unusual case because of the, just of where it was? Yes. So you get a call for a, a man who'd been stabbed or did you already know he was deceased? We get a call for a, a murder, a homicide, or a suspicious death what we got. Because you wouldn't be called unless the guy was very, very badly wounded or already pronounced, right? Right. Yeah. So you get into a, a car and you drive over there. Right. So what, what happened next? What would you do? Well, <laughs> it was
2: very, once I got on the scene, what struck me was um, uh, all the guys were wearing white robes. And um, the house was very neat, very clean, which is unusual in some of the cases that we've been involved in. And um, I knew that we were in for a long night because these were not your um, the, the kind of murder cases that we would normally get in D.C. Uh, we would get cases like this, but not many. So, so once we got there, we immediately just huddled to try to find out our approach to the scene and try to find out what, what, how we was going to interview these guys and what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. And once we determined that. Um, at least with me, I got to look at the, the crime scene. That's, that's to me, what's important of any murder is the crime scene and the evidence that's on the crime scene. And it was shocking to me because when I get in the house, it was clean. And there was a guy upstairs in the bed with a knife in his chest, as if he, didn't realize or expecting it to, to happen to him, and in the room where he was laying, it was that room was also clean. Everything was neat.
0: And Meaning uh, that there was no signs of a struggle, or there was no blood on the floor or places that you would expect to have seen it. That's correct. Right. So, you know, a lot of people have said the details of this you know, raise the hair on the back of their neck. So when you went into that room, what did you, other than it being clean and appearing not to have been a struggle, what else struck you?
2: If I'm not mistaken, um, I think he still had his his blanket on him. And his clothes were neatly folded. And that was kind of weird. Um... Because usually when someone is murdered, there's usually a struggle unless the person was murdered when he was un- when, when he was not expecting to be killed. And to me, the first thing that the way the crime scene looked as if he was asleep
0: and somebody came in there and just stabbed him in the chest. And how soon, by the time you got there, did you hear their story that they claimed that an intruder had come in through the back door, gone into that room, apparently took a knife from the kitchen, according to them, the three that were living in the house, and killed Robert Wan? How soon, by the time you got into the house, did you hear or know about those, or their, their story?
2: Well, it was told to me by one of the detectives. Um, what we do is interview the the first officers on the scene. The first officers on the scene usually give us the story of what happened once they arrived on the scene. And they got the story from one of the gentlemen that was there. And then that story was related to us. And when I heard the story, um, I mean, based on my homicide experience, I just didn't believe it.
0: Initially, right off the bat, you didn't believe the story, right? And can you say why? What was it that stood out that it just didn't make sense to you?
2: First of all, he didn't take anything. Uh, if somebody was coming into the house to commit a robbery or a burglary or anything like that, they, they they're going to take something that they came in there to get. Uh, who comes in the back door of a house that had a very sophisticated security system there? Who comes in the back door? Why is the back door unlocked? Uh, You come through there and you grab a knife out of the kitchen. You go upstairs. You stab a guy in the heart. And then the guy walks out. But where's the (laughs) burglary?
0: Where's the robbery? There's nothing there. So nothing makes sense to you. No. You also noticed, because I read your transcript here, that the stairs were all wooden. Right. And one of their stories was that. They came in, stabbed him and went out and they hardly heard anything other than they heard some grunting, perhaps a scream. Um, And you noticed the wooden stairs and you were incredulous, you said, didn't you hear this killer coming and going, running up and down the wooden stairs? And do you recall what they said? I don't recall exactly what they said. you noticed it as, a, as an experienced detective mm-hmm. that those stairs were wooden and that anybody going up and down them would have made a noise. Oh,
2: you'd have heard it. Yeah, no doubt, no question. Um, coming up the stairs and going down the stairs. And if you're going to kill someone and the intruder knows that there's other people in the house and these other people are making noise, you're going to run to get out of there. You ain't walking you ain't trying to be quiet. You try and get out there as fast as you can because you don't know what they have. You don't know if they're armed. You don't know what the deal is. So you're going to run down the stairs, run out the back door, and last
0: thing is what you're going to do. Uh, it, it, the case just didn't sound right. And in fact, you have experience in burglaries, right? Right. So one thing I noticed in your transcript is that You said a burglar who would come in would start on the first floor, probably gather some items, put it in a bag, leave it by the front door, and if they confronted someone, they're out that door right quick. Right. Not the way this happened. Right. And that also drew your attention. Exactly. Prosecutor Glenn Kirshner also took notice of the stairs and that nothing he observed inside the Swan Street House would lead him to believe the story the three men were telling. Creaky stairs. Creaky, creaky stairs. Uh, Detective Milton uh, Norris told me that that was the one thing that stood out to him was the fact that the wooden stairs. They said they didn't hear anybody going up and down the stairs, and that all they heard was the chime from the uh, security system. Um, in your recollection of being inside the house, did that stand up
1: out to you as well? Yeah, it was ludicrous in the extreme. So he, here's the thing, Paul. As an intruder would have been sort of coming up those 16 creaky old wood steps. People are going to hear that. They're probably going to hear it more than a chime going, beep beep, when a door opens. right? At the top of the steps, at the landing on the second floor, you know what the intruder would have had right smack in front of him? Dylan Ward's bedroom door. Mm -hmm. But we are expected to believe, and Dylan Ward claimed he was sleeping in that bedroom at the time. Mm -hmm. Are are we to believe that the intruder decided not to open that door? Instead, you walk all the way to the front of the house again on the second floor, open the also closed, it was reported by these guys, bedroom door, and then you slaughter Robert in his in his bed. Mind you, Dylan Ward claims he was in his bedroom at the time all this went on and he did not hear their friend being slaughtered in a guest bedroom just feet away. So he's on the same floor, just adjacent to the bedroom where Robert was killed. Uh, Not adjacent, but one, his bedroom was on the back of the house on Swan Street. The guest room was on the front of the house overlooking Swan Street. And Joe and Victor were upstairs, and they claimed that they heard some grunts. They heard some grunts, in in fact, three to be precise, which corresponds well with the three stab wounds. He said tongue in cheek. But then we have Dylan who says he hears nothing. Hears nothing.
0: What also stood out the night of the murder was the demeanor of Price, Ward, and Zaborski. Here again is my conversation with Detective Norris. When you got there, the three men, men—Zaborsky, Price, and Ward, were all there in the living room in robes, right? What did you take from their appearance at that point? Do you recall? Um, They were
2: careful, and I can tell just by the way some of them wouldn't say anything, and maybe one person would, that they pretty much had their story together.
0: As if they had gotten their story together before you got there. Exactly when you were there did you do you recall going out back to look at their claim that there was an intruder yes what struck you
2: <laughs> well uh, like I said um, the backyard if I can recall I think it had a maybe an eight inch fence um, or a gate of some sort where you had to clam over. And and intruder had to climb over the gate because the gate was was locked. And so, and I think it was a vehicle there as well. And he would probably would have had to land on the vehicle, and, and just to get to the to the uh, the porch area. And once you climbed over there, uh, he had he had. Um, the motion, the motion lights, the lights would come on. It was well lit, so. And most burglars, when they don't want to break into homes where there's a lot of light, because they could be seen, they try to pick targets where there's not a lot of lights. And I'm saying to myself, why would he? Why would he pick this target? You know, and um, it, it just didn't look right.
0: And the other detectives who were on the scene with you that night you were all in agreement that it didn't didn't make sense? Yes. So basically their claim was this guy would have had to have jumped over this iron fence, gone in through the back door, grabbed a knife from the kitchen, gone upstairs to the room where Robert Wong was sleeping in the front of the house, stab him three times, then leave the knife and go out the door and nobody hears the thing. Right. And you believe that was just a made up story. Yes. So by the time you got them down to Homsad, the story just seemed incredible. Right. And so you took part in the interview with Joe Price. Um, You and Sergeant Wagner. And you get Joe Price in, and you're asking him questions. What do you recall about his demeanor that night? He was nervous.
2: Um... I I tell you, it appeared to me that, that he wanted to tell the truth, that he wanted to tell what happened. Uh, but I think that his loyalty was more uh, overwhelming than him coming out
0: telling the truth. Loyal to the other two guys in the house. Yes. Because he said repeatedly in that interview that... Those two couldn't have done it because he knew them better than his mother. Right. You recall him saying that? Something to that, to that effect. Yeah. And so he was incredulous, saying, "Those two couldn't have done it." But and then, in, in part of the interview, I think it was either you or Sergeant Wagner notices that he hasn't denied it. Right. What do you recall about that?
2: Yeah. During the interview, he never denied it, and then at some point. Uh, in the middle of the interview, he finally denied denied that he did it once. Once I
0: challenged him on it, but then you get to the point where you're thinking, "Wait a minute, why is Robert Wan there that night?" Right? Right. Because you asked them, and they tell you the story that he needed to meet with this group of employees who were. Uh, uh, at Radio Free Asia and that uh, he had just taken the job that he wanted to meet with them and then he had early business the next day so Even though he's married and heterosexual He's going to stay at this house that night um, with three gay men and At least I know from sergeant Wagner from reading his transcript. He didn't believe that for a minute. No, and what about you? No, you didn't believe it either. No, and and what stood out to you about that? What was odd about it?
2: <laughs> like you said, you had three gay men and you had one guy who they indicated that it was straight. That just didn't make sense. Um, why did you have to stay the night? You had a wife at home, why why you, why not just go home? So that just, it, it didn't sit well with me any other detectives
0: that was there and in fact sergeant wagner points out in the interview that the drive home to oakton couldn't take at that time of night probably more than 30 minutes right why wouldn't you make that drive right so when you start to question joe price he defended robert coming over there saying that robert was a friend and and there was nothing untoward about it right listen now to a portion of the interview with joe price it was videotaped and played at trial.
1: You know, I know like I said, I know Victor and Dylan better than I know my mom. There is no chance on the face of the earth anybody did anything to Robert. Um
2: I mean, that that is not the answer here. You saying that you know them. How well do they know you? I would say they would tell you the same. You
0: sure?
2: I would say so, yeah.
0: You know the reason. I don't know it. I got three homosexuals in a house, mm-hmm. and I got one straight guy. Mm-hmm. What's he doing over there? What is he what is doing he over there? That? I think we're all drinking wine. You know what's going to happen tonight? You're coming to Jesus tonight. That's what's going that's on. That's
1: fascinating and insulting and uh, Here we go. That's why, I I, that's why you're but, making me say it. But and, you know what? That's not what happened.
0: That he was saying Robert was straight. Right. He had no interest in Robert Juan. He. Robert was there, it was all innocent. No. But you didn't believe that? No. There was something else there that you really couldn't get into. Or you couldn't get to the bottom of it, at that point.
2: Well, I, I, I knew what it was. I just couldn't tell him at the time. I wanted him to tell me, and, um, and he, he never said it.
0: That there was some kind of sex that went on that night right and something went wrong right that's what you think happened yes to this day yes to date no evidence has surfaced to indicate robert juan had a secret life he was by all accounts happily married to kathy and they were in love with each other his reasons for staying at the house on swan street that night have certainly been questioned by police and prosecutors but To say he was there for any other reason than needing a place to stay would simply be speculation. After the interviews with detectives were over, Price, Ward, and Zaborski left the homicide office and got into a car with a friend who had come to pick them up. That's when Joe Price decided he needed to go back in and make another statement. In a recent interview for this podcast, I asked Glenn Kirshner what happened next. Kirshner, now retired, was an assistant U.S. attorney and the lead prosecutor in the case.
1: Joe lied to the police in my estimation because he told them during his interview, he found the knife just sort of lying on Robert's stomach, sort of lower chest, upper stomach area. In the initial interview with with Sergeant Wagner and Detective Norris. And he said, I took it and I put it on the nightstand. However, when they took a break from the interviews, he went out, met with you know, his friends in the what I called the Mercedes meeting because they sat in a Mercedes and talked. And then, incidentally, their stories changed when they came back and continued talking to the police. And in the Mercedes meeting, Joe blurts out to a friend that testified, I have to actually pull a knife out of Robert's chest. And he told a female friend of his that after. That's not something I think anybody's likely to make up or forget when they're talking to the police all of that and many other factors lead me to conclude that he was lying to the police about where he found the knife
0: after the interviews were over there were no arrests the three men were free to go later that day august 3rd 2006 dc police made a statement to reporters this is homicide commander cv morris everything right now is
2: still unclear mr wong was stabbed approximately three times some of the information we were told just well, we have several people that were inside the home at the time uh, of the incident uh, as far as what they may have seen or what they did i i still don't want to get into that as of yet until we get a clear definite picture of what was going on
0: approximately two weeks after that captain morris met with reporters once again this time to address a bombshell contained in an affidavit for a search warrant that said investigators believed the crime scene have been cleaned up
2: well that's again that's something that we're looking at hard because we think that there should have been other evidence besides what we saw so it gives rise to the fact that it possibly was cleaned up
0: this podcast would not be possible without the work of producer editor nelson jones a photojournalist here at fox 5. in our next episode you will hear more from detective norris and prosecutor glenn Kirschner, and what it took to put a case together
1: it was a complex investigation. It was exclusively a circumstantial evidence case. We had no eyewitnesses. We had no admissions from these three suspects. What we had was the most curious crime scene I've seen in my 30 years as a prosecutor. And we had a really sophisticated coverup of what went on in that house and who killed Robert Juan.